If you've got a Bible, I wonder if you could turn to the book of Joshua. Uh, it's the Old Testament, obviously. After the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Moses has died. And a new leader has emerged in the people of God. They've had 40 years of wandering through the desert. God has been miraculously providing for them right the way through that desert period of 40 years. Even though there's been rebellion in the camp, God is faithful and good and every day has provided manna from heaven, uh, apart from on the uh, day before the Sabbath, of course, when he provides double uh, and it doesn't go off. Every other day it would go off, but on that day, double. And he's been faithful. It said even the soles uh, of the shoes they wore didn't wear out. God was faithful and one generation died out and another generation generation emerged. It says Moses died and Joshua emerged, being trained by Moses for many years, and he's now emerged as the leader of God's people. And the context that I'm about to read to you in chapter 5, you were wondering, uh, and into chapter 6, I'm going to read Joshua 5, 15, uh, 13 to 6, verse 5. Joshua is literally on the brink of the promised land, They've come through the Jordan. And again, a little bit like going through the Red Sea, there's been another mighty miracle. Uh, waters have parted. The people of God went through. And there they are. They're in the promised land. Their feet are literally in the land now. The land flowing with milk and honey. The new Eden. The land is of God's blessing. But also there's a huge challenge to Joshua. First of all, the Jordan didn't stay open. It closed behind them. There's no way back. Do you ever feel like that? You've taken a step of faith, you've gone forward in something, and you think, oh, there's no way back now. I've stepped into something. And this tribe that were circulating relatively anonymously in the desert for 40 years, some estimates of 2 to 3 million people are now very evident and very obvious in the promised land. And it said, the manna has now stopped. So that which was God was providing every day, suddenly that has stopped. The Jordan's closed behind them and Joshua is in this real predicament. And we're going to pick it up because I think his head is down. We'll come to that in a moment. I think his head's down. I think he's very concerned. He's carrying the weight of two to three million people on his shoulders. There's no way back. Jordan's shut. The manor's stopped. No food today. And suddenly before them is the first mighty city. Not with a great welcome party either. Welcome, children of Israel, come into the promised land, into your inheritance. No, this is a fortified city. This is Jericho with walls that go right up. It says the walls of Jericho were so high, they like ascended to the heavens. It was a mighty fortified city. So that's the context that we're going to be picking up in chapter 5. Now, verse 13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up. That implies to me he'd been looking down. And saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And that's pretty scary, isn't it? He's got a sword drawn in his hand. And in their day, in their culture, that was a battle sign. 
It was a sign that he's armed and dangerous. It was a sign. And Joshua went up to him and asked, "Uh, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. Anyone use the ESV here? Anyone really spiritual? Ginny does. What does it say? Oh, not the ESV. Anyone use the ESV? No ESVers? Yes. What does it say in that? What does it say, Neil? You haven't got it with you. Has anyone got it with them? Yeah, what does it say? Rather neither. In that verse 14. Thank you. It just says no. We'll come back to them in a minute. Neither is not a good translation. No is a much better translation. No, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's armies replied, Take off the sandals for the place that you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was tightly shut up. I'll read that again. Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See? I mean, right, okay. See, I've delivered it into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpet. Kind of like that. Make all the people give a loud shout. Then the walls of the city will collapse and the people will go up and every man will go straight in. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is living, it's active, it's as sharp today, it's as relevant today as it was when this was recorded so many thousand years ago. We ask you, Lord, to speak right into our lives, our community, our church, our situation today from your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. I think Joshua was carrying weight. I think he was carrying concerns. I think he was carrying the weight of the people because it says he looked up. And for me, that implies that he'd been looking down. And he encounters this man. He encounters, I kind of think, out from the mist of the early morning. I'm just kind of imagining it. He kind of encounters this guy with his sword drawn. It's a serious challenge. He's ready, armed for battle. Now, some people say it's an angel, the captain of the Lord's host. Sounds kind of angelic, doesn't it? The Lord's host being a a symbol of angelic powers. But actually, interestingly enough, Joshua later falls down and worships him. Now, whatever happens in the Bible, you're a well-taught people, whatever happens when a man or a woman falls down and worships an angel in the Bible, every time, what happens? It's not rhetorical, I'm asking you. They say, don't worship me, worship the Lord. This one doesn't. This one receives worship. Commentators are pretty unanimous that this is an appearance, what's called a theophany, appearance of God in the flesh in the Old Testament. Some commentators even go so far as to say, new word to learn, a Christophany, i.e. an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. There's many appearances of God in the flesh 
In the Old Testament, for instance, God walked in the flesh with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. God appears to Abraham three, in three. Interesting, three people turn up and Abraham worships and calls them Lord. Well, another story for us another day. Jacob wrestles with one who he later recognises, I've seen the Lord. Gideon, when the angel of the Lord comes there, that's probably another theophany. And Daniel, of course, uh, sorry, in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, do you remember what it says? We looked in and one like, did we not put three people in the fiery furnace? He goes, yes. Well, he, he, Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, well, there's one like the Son of God with them. I wonder who that could be, one like the Son of God shining with brighter fire than the fire. God appears in the flesh, and of course, he wonderfully appears in the flesh in the New Testament. God became flesh, took on flesh, and walked amongst us. Here is the Lord Jesus, or a theophany of God, appearing, and Joshua recognised it. I love what Al brought to us. I, I read that in the uh, newspaper as well. Actually, it's an old story. I've heard the Queen actually tell, not personally, I've heard the Queen tell the story, but there was a, a royal biography I, I heard and she told the story and somebody, she said, you know, she was dressed up with her headscarf and all that and a tourist came up and said, you know, she had a security guard with her, obviously. T tourist came up and said, have you ever met the Queen? She said, no. Obviously, she's never met the Queen. She said, no, but this man has, you know. And it, that's a true story. It's funny, isn't it? And it's like, you didn't, you could, you hit, the tourist was in the presence of royalty and didn't recognize it, as Al was brilliantly saying. Sometimes we can be in the presence of Jesus. Sometimes we can be in the royal, majestic, glorious presence, and we don't even know. We're thinking about the shopping list. We're thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about getting home. We're thinking about what's for dinner. We're thinking about the kids. We're thinking about school the next day. Jesus appears to us. Now, it's interesting, that verse that was commented on, I'm going to make a room for you. I'm going to make a place for you. That's not some heavenly travel lodge. You know, where he's kind of like, I'm fluffing up the pillows. I'm making it right for you. No, when he says, I'm making a place for you where you and I will dwell together and I will come and dwell with you, he's talking about a place in the church. He's talking about us as a community. There's room, there's place, there's a space for you where God dwells. We are the people of God. When we come together, it's not just a nice community sing-song. It's not just, oh, it's quite a happy time when the church gets together. It's kind of fun and laughter and, and good and good vibes. And we come. No, God makes his place with us. God comes and dwells when two or three meet together. And you can't have a meeting with less than two or three. But when two or three meet together, there I come and presence myself. He was here this morning and is here this morning by his spirit. The presence of the Lord is with us. And so often I think we can miss him. So often we can be like Mary in the garden, uh, talking to the gardener. <laughs> Do you know where they've laid my Lord? Mary. Wow. Or so often we can be like those two guys on the road to Emmaus, chatting away. Haven't you heard? Why are you so troubled? Oh, haven't you heard the story? Uh, no, I kind of haven't. You know, so that... They tell him the story, and then he tells them a story, a better story. And then they say, come, eat with us. And when he breaks bread, their eyes are open. He's gone. Whoa, didn't our hearts burn within us? It was the Lord. He appeared. 
The Lord appears. Do you know what? He appears a lot more than we realize. He's with us a lot more than you appreciate. And I want to pray this morning for the eyes of your heart to be open, that you'd see the risen Lord in his glory, in his presence. And he's not just in meetings, hallelujah. The Bible says actually he comes and indwells us by the Spirit. So when you go to school tomorrow, he's with you. When you go to college tomorrow, he's with you. When you go to the office tomorrow, he's with you. When you go to the school gate tomorrow, he's with you. When you're in that coffee shop tomorrow, he's with you. When you're in that community centre, he's with you. When you go out, whatever you're doing tomorrow, the Lord is with you. Be aware of his presence. Be aware that the Lord is with us. And I love the challenge. It, it, it's like, who goes there? Are you for us or for your enemy? And as Ginny rightly says, the answer is not neither. That's, that's a, an Englishization to make the passage make sense. The passage doesn't make sense because Jesus doesn't answer the question. I love it when Jesus doesn't answer questions. Are you with us or are you for our enemies? No. Wrong question, Joshua. It's not about whose side I'm on. Is God on my side? Is God with me? No, it's not about that, Joshua. It's whose side you are on. You've got to understand the battle doesn't belong to you. This is the battle is the Lord's. Do you know that? When you're at work tomorrow, when you're at school tomorrow, oh God, would you help me in my trouble? Would you help me in my situation? No, this is about the Lord's battle. This is about what God's doing. And we get the mighty privilege of being with him in his battles. See, it's not your battle at work. It's not your battle at school. It's not your battle in the office. It's, not, it's his battle. He's the one who's battling. He's the one who's fighting. He's the one who's bringing deliverance. He's the one who's bringing freedom. He's the one who's bringing light into darkness. He's the one who's bringing salt and bringing a, a purifying agent into our lives. He's the one who's doing that. We get the remarkable privilege of being with him on mission. It's his mission, not ours. We live in a world that's so me-centric. Everything's about a consumerist. What do I get out of it? Where, where do I fit in? You know, I've said before, you put I in front of any product, it just sells more because it's iPod, iPad, I this, I that. It's all about me. And actually, it's not. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. It's all about his mission. And this was not about the people of Israel fulfilling their mission. This was about God's mission for them. And Jesus had come as the captain to take charge of the battlefield. And Jesus comes, and he does that in your life. He, does to, he comes to take charge of the battle you're going through. He comes to be Lord in your situation. God, where are you? He's right with you, being Lord. And you can be with him if you like. That's what he's saying to Joshua kind of echoes of David. You know when David encounters Goliath? I mean, Goliath is impressive, seven and a half feet tall. I mean, that's even, you know, there's some, there are some pretty tall people. You knew I was looking at you. There's some pretty tall people amongst us, but you know how tall? Ah, see, just a minnow, six foot seven. Goliath has another foot on you and I would probably say a bit bulkier, you know, I, I could be wrong, but you know, I, I, I dare to say uh, Goliath was a bit, you know, very impressive, but not impressive to David. What does David says? David says this in 1 Samuel 17, it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, 
or muscle or might or column inches. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Dear friends, you've got to understand, it's not your battle, it's his. It's not your fight, it's his. That difficulty you're going through, that issue you're going through where somebody is wronging you, they're not wronging you, they're wronging him. That battle you're going through where there's relational discord, it's not about you, it's about him. That battle that you're going through in that circumstance in your office or in your home or in your family, I want you to know it's not your battle. The battle is the Lord's. And you not, might not realize it, but God's with you. And he's been fighting for you. And he gives you the wonderful privilege of fighting with him in his battle. As it says in Romans 8, I read this this morning in my devotions. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God is for us, dear friends. He's with us. And more importantly, we're with him in the battle. So that's the first thing I want to say. Joseph, sorry, Joseph, I told you I'm tired. <laughs> if I say the wrong name, Stuart, put me right, all right? Joshua encounters the Lord. Second thing I want to say is how does Joshua respond? Now, I want to go through this quickly. There are six ways that Joshua responds. First of all, there's new worship. And I loved Dave's, Dave Cutting's reading out the supremacy of Jesus from Colossians chapter 1. Yes, good, got it right. Uh, and it says this, Then Joshua fell down, face down to the ground in reverence. What a beautiful description, what a beautiful definition of worship. He fell down and recognised the Lord was here. He recognised his. He recognised the song choice, Katie. Thank you so much. This my majesty. We bow before him. Joshua, like David, is more overwhelmed by the Lord's presence, more overwhelmed by the fact the Lord is with us than the fact that there was a Goliath in David's place or the fact that there is walled cities in Joshua's case. He's more overwhelmed by the majesty and power of the captain of the Lord than he is by the height of the walls. He gets his priorities right. And when Jesus turns up, the first response is not to say, what are your battle plans, Jesus? What plans do you have? The first response is simply to worship him, like we did this morning. The first response is to bow at his feet. The first response is to love and to worship him. We are called to be worshippers first before we're doers. And I think so often we've just got to hear that, guys. Primarily, we're worshippers. Primarily, that's who we are. We're worshippers. We're not mission agents for him to do things for him, although we will do lots for him, but we're primarily worshippers. It's worship first. It's God first. It's love first. It's worship. Getting our priorities right, it's worship first. And as we worship him, as we get him in the right perspective to be who he is and to see who he is, actually battle plans come and things fall into place. Because worship gives us a right perspective. In worship, we see a big God and a small enemy. See, David was primarily a worshipper, therefore he saw a very small Goliath and a very big God. Joshua starts to worship, and suddenly the perspective shifts from big walls to big warriors with us. It's in worship that happens. It says in the Bible, Psalm 22, verse 3, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. As Israel praises you, God's 
It's not like he becomes king, but his kingdom is revealed. His glory is revealed. He, his enthronement is seen. I love Psalm 34, verse 3. It says, O magnify the Lord with me, and let him exalt his name together. Any kids got magnifying glasses? It's probably that's a really old-fashioned thing. It's probably something your grandparents have. You got magnifying glass? You have. So Rachel has a magnifying glass. So Rachel, if you have an ant, you know, an ant or a spider, maybe not a good thing to do. Maybe we should pick something a little bit more innate, like a, a pea. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a bean. If you put your magnifying glass to it, what happens to your view? gets bigger. Does the pea get bigger? Does the spider actually get bigger? No. So when, when David says, magnify the Lord with me, he's not saying God's going to get bigger. God can't be any bigger than he is. He fills everything in all ways. But our perception, our view of him, the magnification of him gets bigger in our eyes. We start to see him as glorious and powerful and mighty and majestic like he really is. And it's in worship that this happens. And we don't worship him after the event, we worship him before the event. See, Paul and Silas in prison, they start to sing their songs, they start to worship in jail, they start to lift their praise, their worship, as they're worshipping him, clunk, click, gates are opening, jail is getting opened. Jehoshaphat, now you've got to understand, King Jehoshaphat, some people think he just didn't really like musicians very much because he sent the musicians out first into battle. No, he sent the musicians, the worship, out into battle first because it was a declaration that God is king. And we come here not with bows and arrows and spears and uh, automatic rifles or cannons, but we come with praise, we come with worship. It's worship that's our battle cry. And we come, as it were, unarmed, but armed with everything because we come with the arm of the Lord. We come praising his name because we're nothing but he's everything. We come and worship and praise and love him. That's why we don't just worship as a warm-up to the preach. We don't just worship in a prayer meeting as a warm-up to our prayers. We worship to get our perspective right, that he's king, that he's ruling, that he is sovereign. And worship also draws us into intimacy. Again, didn't we get that coming through this morning? The intimacy, the love. It's worship that opens our eyes not just to the bigness of God, not just the majesty of God, not just to the might and power and authority of God, but to the intimacy of God as well, that he is all he is for us, that he loves us, that he knows our name, that he's prepared a place for us in this community, that he's for us, that he's fighting battles that we're going to win because we're connected to him. And it's worship that opens our eyes, not just to his power, because a God who is powerful on his own could be very fearsome in the wrong way, but a God who is not just powerful on his own, but a God who in his power shows his love and mercy. That's the right perspective of fear. That's the right perspective of the Lord. And this isn't some... Some people think, oh, if we can get this intimacy with God, won't it be all squishy? 
and sort of oozy and sort of weak and, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend, kind of, you know, sickly, kind of... No, the love of God is strong and robust and wonderful and beautiful. And the more we see him, the more we love him, the more actually we're captivated by his beauty, the more actually we're propelled out on mission. Paul says that. For Christ's love compels us. It just, it's not woozy or wishy-washy or weak or sentimental. Love for Christ compels us into mission. Love for Christ compels us into battles. Love for Christ. Why? Because we know he's with us. We know he loves us. We know he's for us. We know the love of God sustains us. So Isaac Watts can write amazing songs like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life my soul, my all. When you understand the love of God for you, you give yourself to him like no other. David understood the love of God for him. He could fight Goliath. Joshua is starting to understand the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God to him. He could go and fight his battles out of that. See, there's a, a link in the Old Testament between the awesome fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord. Let me give you a couple of Psalms. Psalm 112, verse 1. Blessed are those who fear the Lord. They find great delight in his commands. See, there's great delight in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord isn't scary. The fear of the Lord is awesome that provokes us to act. Psalm 118, verse 4. Let those who fear the Lord say... I'm dead scared of the Lord. No, it says this. Let those who fear the Lord say, his love endures forever. See that beautiful link between fear, awesomeness, power, authority, and love, devotion. Dear friends, these are not opposites. These are beautiful sides of our Savior, who is both awesome and powerful to be feared, but out of that fear, to be loved and adored and for us to be empowered on mission with the love of God. So there was a new worship. Secondly, there was new submission. What message does my Lord have for his servant? Not, uh, uh, thank you, commander of the Lord's host. Now I've got your attention. Give me your battle plan. So it was worship first, but now it's, what would you say? What are your plans? Not, oh, now you're here. Let me show you my seven-step plan to take Jericho. Uh, is this pretty good, Lord? I think it's pretty good. You know, I am, after all, the leader of Israel, your holy people, and, you know, I'm probably your best representative here on earth, and I've come up with a good plan. See, sometimes we do that in our lives. We think, oh, I've, I've come up with a really logical really sensible, really bright and intelligent. I have been, you know, to this university and I have, you know, I'm you know, pretty intelligent. In this day and age, I'm pretty intelligent, don't you know? And I've come up with this plan to witness to my friends and to be a light in my school and to uh, go on mission together and to go to the nations and to do that. I've come, no, it's not God, will you bless my plans? It's, oh God, what are your plans for us? Now, number three, notice what the commander says to him. Number three, it comes out of devotion. It's a new devotion. So it's new worship, new submission, new devotion. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And uh, people get confused about that. Holiness isn't about a particular place. 
In some traditions, you get holy buildings. In fact, in some traditions, certain parts of the building are holier than other parts of the building. And holiness is not just some little bit of ground in the Middle East. Holiness is about where God is. The bit of ground was only holy because Jesus was standing on it. And it's connectivity to God that makes us holy. See, be holy for I am holy. The only reason that we can be the holy people of God is not that we work hard, we do well, we do right, we don't do wrong, we do the, keep the Ten Commandments. Now that's, that's legalism if we're not careful. The reason that we can be holy is because we are in proximity to the Holy One. In fact, we're not just near him, the Bible says we're in him. We're joined to Christ. We're in Christ. In fact, that's the Bible's New Testament best description of the Christian. We're in him. We're in Christ. And therefore, everything that's true of him is true of us. We're righteous because we're in him. We're at peace because we're in him. We're secure because we're in him. We're loved because we're in him. And holiness for us, we need to understand. We need to act out of that. We need to step out of that and be holy but it's being who you are. It's not trying to be who you're not. I must try and be holy this week. I must try and be good this week. No, you are holy. You're God's holy people. Ephesians 1, verse 4. For he has chosen us in him before the creation of the world, before you had any chance to mess up, screw up, do anything good or bad, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Dear friends, that's what you are. You're the holy people of God. Now be who you are. Sometimes we tell children that, don't we? You ever heard your mum and dad say, just come on, be who you are. Come on, you're not four anymore. You're five, you're six. Come on, be who you are. Come on, you're not seven anymore. You're ten, you're eleven. Come on, be who you are. Don't be a five-year-old anymore. Be, be who you are. Listen, be who you are. You're the holy people of God. Shine out. Let, let love and holiness and mercy and grace emanate from you. Why? Because that's who you are. If you're connected to Jesus, the love and grace and mercy of him is in you. Be who you are. Be who you are tomorrow. It's quarter to 12 on a Sunday. Where are you going to be at quarter to 12 tomorrow? More importantly, who are you going to be tomorrow? See, sometimes we put our Sunday best on and then we put our Monday worst on. <laughs> It's like we're, we're the holy people of God on a Sunday, hallelujah. And then on Monday, it's, oh, we're in this dreadful battle. Oh, no, you're the same person tomorrow as you are today. Be who you are. Be the people of God. Be the holy people. At school, when it's difficult, you can be who you are. You don't have to put on different, you might have to put on different school, well, you don't wear uniforms here in Sheffield, do you? But some people do. You, know, you, you might have to put on a different uniform, but be who you are. Be a child of God. At work, at that difficult office, that difficult situation, be who you are. You don't have to put different clothes on. Be who you are. Fourthly, so we've said there was new worship, new submission, new devotion. Fourthly, new vision. He saw things differently. I just, it, it makes me laugh every time I read this scripture. Now Jericho, I mean, just which description are you more impressed with? Now Jericho was tightly shut up, but Jesus says, See, I've given or delivered Jericho into your hands. It doesn't look like very delivered into our hands. And God often does that to us. See, 
I've saved that person you're witnessing to. They don't look very safe to me. See, I'm bringing healing there. Doesn't look very healed to me. Look, I'm bringing peace and restoration there. Doesn't look very peaceful and restored to me. See, I'm opening up a new building, a new congregation, a new... Doesn't look very open to me. See, I'm giving you that finance for that thing. I, I looked in my bank. Have you not seen my bank account, Lord? It's actually very tightly shut up. It's so tightly shut up, I can't get any more out of it. No, see, I've delivered it into your hands. It's faith that comes. It's new vision that comes. As we see the Lord in glory and vision, as we see him in power and majesty, he then starts to give us new lenses, new eyes, new glasses, new sight to see things very differently. Battles that look like they were failures suddenly become opportunities for his love and his grace and his mercy. See, David wasn't intimidated by Goliath. He didn't see him as a giant. He'd seen someone bigger. And many of us are more aware of our Jerichos or our Goliaths than we are of God. Your situation. Now Joshua, this wasn't a sudden shift for Joshua. Joshua had lived his life like this. Actually Joshua, as a much younger man, 40 years ago, we were younger 40 years ago, weren't we Stuart? (laughs) Some of you weren't born. Joshua, 40 years ago, was one of the spies that was sent in. Do you remember the story? On the brink of the promised land again at Kadesh Barnea. Again, two million people behind. Moses sends the spies in, 12 spies representing the 12 nations. And they come back and they go, wow, it's amazing. All this fruit, big, biggest bunch of grapes I've ever seen. Incredible fruitfulness. They're carrying this, you've seen the children's Bible, they're all carrying this big bunch of grapes. Oh, but... There were some pretty big giants in the land. This is what they say in Numbers, in Numbers 13. There's some pretty big giants. We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. All the people, I mean, this is just a lie, but it's it's their perceptive. All the people we saw were of giant size. And we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And I'm sure we looked the same to them. Actually, they were dead scared of the children of Israel, if the truth were known. But they look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Do you look like a grasshopper in your own eyes sometimes? God wants you to look differently. He wants you to have new vision. He wants you to see yourself as who you are. A child of God, carrying the Spirit of God. A holy one. He wants you to see things differently because he's with you and he's giving you new sight, giving you new eyes. I think I've preached this here before. I think it was Rachel that first put me onto this verse a couple, two or three years ago, Isaiah 43, 18 to 19, forget the former things, don't dwell on the past, see, I'm doing a new thing, now it springs up, do you not perceive it? And God wants to give us here in Sheffield new vision, he wants to give us new eyes that we might see things differently. See, we walk not by natural sight, but by faith. We walk not by seeing things as the world does, that financial challenge, that home, that relationship, that office situation, that person who's really horrible to you at school, we don't see it as the world sees it, we see it as God sees it. And God says, that's not a tightly shut up city. See, I've given it into your hands. See, I'm going to give you breakthrough in that. See, look with the eyes of faith. I'm giving you new eyes of faith. See that congregation open up in the south. 
And that's not just one congregation. We're going to see seven congregations open up across Sheffield. Seven hills and Sheffield and cities. And it's going to be wonderful what God's going to open up and open up. See, look with faith. Look with eyes of faith. Not just, oh, I'm going to lose some friends. It's going to be hard. I quite like it when we're all together like this. No, see with the eyes of faith. See the fresh opportunities God's given. Number five, new unity. They all had to act together. They had to march round together. And for six days, they were in silence, by the way. Didn't read it in that passage, but it tells us later. If you read on to chapter six. And then all the people gave a loud shout together. But first of all, you can read this in chapter 6, verse 10. He says, march around six times, or six days once, and then the seventh day. He says, and don't say a word. It's funny, isn't it? Don't say a word. It's funny. When I first started to look at this, I thought, why would they not say a word? i tell you why. Because sometimes when we're doing drudgery, marchy, ordinary stuff, we're tempted to say the wrong things. And first day, it'll be like this. Isn't this great? We're all together. I think Joshua's a really good... I mean, Moses was okay, but I think Joshua's the good... He's a good... He meet, Joshua meets Jesus. I mean, it's great. Joshua's, a, Joshua's really good. We're really... First day. Third day, have you noticed them looking at us? Do you feel silly? I feel silly. Joshua, he looks really... I don't think Moses would have done this. Moses used to speak to rocks and things happen. Moses, yeah, I, I wish Moses was back with us. Sixth day, this is flipping stupid. What are we doing? Jo- Joshua's an idiot. Joshua's nuts. What the heck are we doing? See, that's sometimes, sometimes we've just got to shut up. Sometimes we've just got to stop speaking in our human ways and human thinking and human logic and human wisdom. And sometimes faith is to be quiet. Jesus, before his accusers, said absolutely nothing. And sometimes there's, to be quiet, Nehemiah, when Sanballat and Tobias says, come and have a talk with us, about, come down off the wall and let's just have a conference. Let's have a t- I have nothing to say to you, I'm about a great work, shut up. And sometimes we've just got to be quiet and obey God. Because there's this new unity together. God wanting them to act together. Doesn't it remind you of one of our family promises? We can do more together than we can on our own. It says in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, that we are all going to reach unity together. There's going to be a togetherness and a unity. Ephesians 6, all about battle, all those verbs, you. See, they taught me when I moved from the south to the north. that there's. See, if I say you or you, you don't know who I'm saying. I could be saying you or you. In the north, they say you and yous. They do in Yorkshire anyway, in, in North Yorkshire. They say yous. Hey, yous lot. It's good. Every verb in that Ephesians 6 is yous. It's plural. It's together. Together we stand. Together we put the armour on. Together we lift up the shield of faith. Together we lift up the sword of the Spirit. Together we put the helmet of salvation. Together we act. And having done all, we stand together. It's about unity. It's about togetherness. And God wants to bring a togetherness to us. He wants to march us in step, not out of step. There's something amazing when an army marches in step. 
One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. There's something incredible when an army marches together. There's something awesome and fearsome. It says in the Song of Solomon, it talks about awesome as an army with banners and mighty and majestic. There's something awesome. There's something mighty about the church marching together, about unity, togetherness, all with one voice, and then all shouting together. There's something awesome about that, which brings me to my sixth and final point. There's a new exercise of faith. See, even though Joshua had received the vision, he still needed to be obedient. He still needed to step out in faith. He needed to act out his faith. James tells us, faith without deeds, working it out, is useless. And although it was pretty silly instructions from a human point of view, it was not unintelligible. Children could understand it. It just defied human logic. And God says, we've got to become like little children. Wasn't it so impressive at Devoted to see those kids on the platform and to see one after the other having prophetic words and words that actually came true at that point. Little Jesh having this word about someone being healed. Literally 15 minutes later, I'm walking across the campsite and I'm get, trying to get into the Amplify meeting to be with some of you amplifiers. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm important. I'm trying to get to the meeting. Don't you know who I am? And this woman tries to accost me. She says, oh, Jeremy, can I have a word? I said, no, I'm busy. See you. <laughs> Lovely, beautiful attitude that I had. I'm busy. I need to get to a mission. You might want to hear this, she says, carrying two crutches. I go, oh, okay. Tell me your story. She said, well, I'm Sharon. And she said, for 18 years, I've had incurable, absolutely major back pain and sciatica. I'm on morphine. I'm on heaviest dose. I'm on this... You know, I've had that, and I, I, I can't go through a moment or a meeting without any pain. When that little boy prayed for someone with a back problem radiating down their leg, I felt this liquid love go through me, and at the moment, I was totally healed. I have not felt pain since. It's amazing. Now, incredible. Little children. We've got to act like children. We've got to become childlike. Not childish, but childlike. You know, I'd have thought... Of course there's going to be somebody in back pain and 2,000 people, but little Jesh goes for it and someone gets healed. Wonderful. Guys, sometimes his instructions to us sound as if they confront human wisdom. They're supposed to, because the power of God does not lie in human wisdom. It acts in obedience. And he sometimes asks you to do something. See, sometimes he'll ask you to give away that which you haven't got. You think... But I haven't got it to give away. No, you give it in faith. Sometimes he'll ask you to step out and to speak a word to someone who's being antagonistic to you. Think, no, if they're nice to me, I'll be nice back. God, if you give me a hundred pounds, I'll give you some of it back. Now, often we have to act in faith on the basis of what he said before he gives us that which he's promised. You see, they were told, if you shout all together, the walls will come down. That had never happened before. We know it in the Bible. Oh, yeah, you shout and walls come down. Easy. That had not happened before. They had to shout in obedience. It was a silly thing to do. It was not illogical. It, was, it, did, it defied their logic. And someone's got to ask us to do things and to step out in faith. I'd have said this. 
uh, excuse me, Mr. Jesus, I'd have said, look, you bring the walls down and I'll shout as much as you like. That's what we do. But no, no, we have to shout before. We have to pray before someone gets healed. We have to give before. We have to reach out with some words before. And God is calling us to act as a people, both individually and corporately, in faith. To step out in faith. It happens all the time in the Bible. It had just happened before the priests were told to step into the water and then the waters would subside. And I'd have gone, no, no, you don't understand. You've got to get the stick. Moses had the magic stick. Magic stick, point at water, water separates, and then we walk through. Haven't you read it, Joshua? It, wasn't only, it was only 40 years ago. I think you were there. Magic stick, point it out, water's passed. No, this time you had to step in. It said, and the, it said the Jordan was in full flow. So these priests with their garments carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the most precious thing on earth, they had to step in to the Jordan in full flow. And guess what? As they stepped in, the water subsided. Sometimes you've just got to step out in faith. Naaman was told to wash in the dirty Jordan. He says, there are better rivers at home. I've got some pretty clean ones, not polluted like this Jordan. No, he, he had to wash in the dirt and the dirty Jordan before his leprosy went. Now, you know, clean my leprosy. I'll wash in the dirty water if you want. Dirty water doesn't heal leprosy. But faith, acted out, sees mighty things happen. Cana, the wedding. <laughs> Take some of this water from those big jars that are used to wash dirty feet, the dirty water. Take some of the dirty water. Take the dirty water. You can still see it's all grimy and sedimentary and yucky. Take it to the master of ceremony and give it to him. Act in faith. They said, Mary said, do what he tells you to do. All right, I'm doing what he tells me to do. The master of ceremony goes, Oh, Chateau Neuf de Pat. Oh, beautiful. You saved the best to last. And there's a little line in it, and it said, And only the servants knew what happened. You can imagine Jesus going, <laughs> We know what happened. See, it was an act of faith. I love it. I, the best one for me is Jesus with the man with the withered arm. Have you ever noticed that one? The man with the withered arm. So Jesus said to the man with the withered arm, Stretch forth your arm. It's like, that's the one thing you can't do. The very thing he's come to you for, he can't do. Don't you get it, Jesus? That's why you're Lord and I'm not. I can't do that. You heal me and I'll put my arm up. No, stretch forth your arm. Okay. Oh, I get healed. And quite often, I would say more times than not, he asks us to step out in obedience before we see that which he's promised us. There are personal things right across this room. God is speaking to you about stepping out in something. It's about a healing. It's about a deliverance. It's about a financial matter. It's about a relationship issue. It's about somebody getting saved. And he says, if you've heard him, that's the, it's not just, oh, I'll have a go then. No, if you've heard him, if he said do it, step out in faith, believing the word of God, even before you see it come to pass. He's causing us as a church to do that. Step out in faith. Another congregation. Step out in faith. Do this. Step out in faith. 
In times of attack, and they were in an attack, and I would say this is a great principle I've learned, in times of attack, if you don't know what to do, do the very opposite of that for which you're being attacked in. I know that sounds crazy, I'll say it again. If you don't know, if you, well, God hasn't said anything to me. Well, what, where are you being attacked in? Oh, I'm being attacked in my finances. Right, the devil wants to rob you, I'm going to give more. Is this just an appeal for church's money? No, it's an appeal for faith. If you find it hard to step out, and you, I'm just not seeing anyone healed or set free, do you know what? Pray for some more this week. If you say, I can't, I've not seen any of my friends respond to the gospel, no, give another appeal this week. The area that the enemy is pressing in on you, do the opposite. If you're being tempted in a particular area of adultery, press in more to your marriage. Give more, to your lo- give more love together. And if you're being tempted to distrust leaders, trust more, give more, pray more, be committed in more. Often it's in that area of doing the exact opposite of what the enemy is trying to tempt us in.